This audio was recorded at St. Barnabas Bible School in Larnaca, Cyprus. To find more resources or to find out more about St. Barnabas Bible School, visit our website at www.stbarnabasbibleschool.org. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this chance uh, to get together, to uh, study your word, uh, to learn more about the truth that you have revealed to us. We pray, Lord, that as we study, we will not just know more, but we will know you more, uh, and that we will love your revelation of yourself, that we'll come to understand the world you've created more, that we'll see your glory in it more, and that we'd long to live for you uh, more faithfully. So please bless us with that this evening. In Jesus' name, Amen. All right, just a, a brief recap um, uh, of last week for all of those of you who weren't here. Um, <laughs> so last week we were thinking about um, what we were created for as humans. Um, we were created to live from the beginning in the beauty of holiness. We're meant to reflect the glory of God, uh, reflect his character into every corner of the world wherever humans uh, were to spread there they were to reflect the glory of God. Uh, and such a thing is, is a beautiful thing to be created for. Um, uh, we saw that uh, we have been saved from our sins. Uh, that's the bit that we all know really well. But we've been saved for something as well. We've been saved to a holy life. Uh, to live a life saved from our sins, from the penalty of sin, uh, from the power of sin, from the presence of sin. Um, but also a life, a life uh, that has been saved for righteousness. God saved us from our sins so that we could be something uh, in particular. Uh, and that is to live a life of glory to God in every part. Um, whether, whether we eat or drink, do it for the glory of God. Um, so the aim of life now for us as saved people is to live in a way which glorifies God in every part of life. To learn what that is and to do it. Now, um, in, an attempt, in, our, in our attempts to live the Christian life, so I think we come across some tensions as we walk that path. Um, and, uh, and, and one of the tasks that we have is to, to walk between those tensions without falling into the ditch on either side um, on any path, any old road certainly in England there's <laughs> ditches on either side yeah. and it's often like that isn't it we find these tensions and it's possible to fall off one side or, or fall off the other side um, so here are some of the tensions that we've come across uh, we know that we ought to act rightly we ought to do good but at the same time, we know that acting rightly doesn't earn our salvation. Um, there's a tension there. So we, why is this important if it doesn't earn our salvation? Uh, but I can't not act rightly. I know that that's what I'm supposed to do. And um, we know that obedience and disobedience has an effect on how things turn out. Um, forgive my spelling mistake on the handout there. It should be effect, not affect. Um, it wasn't your fault. It was a computer. I know. I think this was probably... This probably was my fault, actually, about this one. Um, so we know that obedience and disobedience has an effect on how things turn out. Uh, whether I do what God says affects things. Um, but at the same time, we know that thing, how things turn out depends on God's power, not on, not on our power. So there's a, there's a tension there. Um, and, and in navigating these, we don't want to fall off either side of the road. Um, there, are, there are ditches on all sides. So one of the ditches we can fall into is... Uh, the ditch of legalism. Um, that's if we forget the ethical living doesn't earn me salvation part of that. 
we start trying to earn our salvation, mm-hmm. doing good for the sake of getting into heaven. Uh, and people have fallen into that ditch many times. Um, but we can fall into an antinomianism as well if we forget the I must live rightly, rejecting all commands, uh, basically thinking that we're free to do whatever we want, wherever our passions lead us. Um, Sounds like the Roman church. Sorry, I, I keep not. Yes, there's. there's uh, <laughs> if, if, if the church was all healthy, we wouldn't need things like this. <laughs> that's a brilliant response. Yeah. Um, so that, that's what you can fall into if you forget the. Uh, I don't. If you forget the I must live rightly, uh, that I've been been saved for a holy life. Um, you, you can fall into a sort of. Uh, what I call a pietistic determinism, a rejection of God using the means around you, your obedience, your disobedience, to affect things in history. If you forget that, that principle of what we do affects things, that God uses them, and God has called uh, us to act in a certain way and then uses that to affect other things. Uh, or you can fall into a sort of kind of human power, humanism, we're actually the ones in control, if you forget that it's ultimately God's power that does everything. Um, so it's quite difficult to dodge all of those ditches, to thread that needle perfectly, um, and so to come out of those tensions on the side of the Bible and what the Bible says. Um, and you see people falling those ditches on either side. Now, <clears throat> tonight I want to present the, what I believe is the Bible's framework for helping us to navigate those ditches and... Um, leaving us in a place that is really true and beautiful. Um, and that is to think a little bit about how God relates to his people and what he calls them to. Um, God relates to his people in covenants. That's how God relates to his people. He calls his people to covenant faithfulness. Um, now, I, I don't think that at the end of this lecture we're going to have all of the answers to those tensions tied up nice and neatly. Um, but, I, but I just want to introduce the, uh, the concept and the framework that I think ultimately leads us to uh, solving those issues if we think about them more. Um, okay, so, so God relates to his people in covenants. Here's a, here's a question for you, because uh, I'm sure you've heard the word covenant. What is a covenant? A promise? Yeah, I've heard, I've heard promise a lot. Agreement between two parties. Mm-hmm. Agreement. Yep. But it's a sovereignly imposed, well, at least a biblical covenant is imposed by one party on the other. Yeah, sovereignly so, administered. Yeah. 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 yeah so I, I've heard var- variations on all of those. I've heard a, a lot of people say, um, a covenant is a promise, um, but as we've sort of touched on, it's more than a promise. Mm-hmm. Um, for, it's more than a promise in that, um, oh, we'll get to that in a minute, but uh, for our purposes, we're going we're gonna to focus a little bit on, on uh, these other aspects of covenants that we've, we've touched on there. Um, for our purposes tonight, and whilst there are many different differences, different definitions out there, um, for our purposes tonight, we're going to say a covenant is, is a particularly strong kind of legally binding relationship between two parties uh, and that has at, its outset, has at its formation a particular form of agreement, um, a particular uh, form of agreement that sets the framework for then life within the covenant. So it's a, it's a legally binding relationship 
that sets a framework then for life after it. Um, and, and, and the agreement itself takes a particular form. Um, let's pick out some of those key features of that, that definition because I, I appreciate there's a lot there. Um, we'll, we'll pick those things out and we'll discuss that a little bit further. So firstly, uh, a covenant is a legal reality. So that's what I mean there by a covenant is a particularly strong legally binding relationship. Um, and, and as I've said, we often hear covenant as synonymous with promise. And of course, there are promises within covenants. That's a huge part of covenants. But they are more than a bare promise. Um, I could promise something to you with no, with no binding or loosing of who I am or what I'm to do afterwards. I could walk up to you having never met you before, promise you something, do it, leave, and that's it relationship done um, you know I could walk out there now uh, I could go down to a super discount store I could say uh, give me two euros I'll go there buy a packet of biscuits I promise I'll bring it back to you uh, and do it and then that person I will never meet them again ever um, so promises can be independent of relationship they can just you know be a thing that you can have a, a bare promise um, with, with that kind of thing there's a, there's a promise without a necessary response there's no ongoing relationship there's no binding together of two parties that's just a, a naked promise just bare promise and a covenant is more than that much more than that uh, a covenant creates a formal relationship it creates something um, legal realities are, are real things um, when a covenant is created, it, it, it creates a bond that is so strong that it becomes bound into the fabric of reality. Um, something new exists. Something that wasn't is now. Uh, and, and it is a legal entity, a legal reality um, uh, that is formed. Uh, we, can, we can see this a little bit clearer perhaps with, uh, with a marriage, which is one of the most familiar types of covenantal arrangement that we, we see around us, even in, in our world today. Um, in a marriage ceremony, words are said and a reality is created. Uh, the words are said and yet something new comes into being. Um, everyone and everything after that moment stands in a different relation to each other. Uh, the fabric of reality is, has changed somewhat because a legal reality has been created through uh, promises made, through uh, a binding relationship established. Um, just a little aside there on the power of words to create things. Uh, you'll often find people today say things like, well, marriage can't be a thing because it's just words, just words that are said. Um, but we should remember as Christians that words are what we use to create all things. Um, words are powerful. Um, and the gospel word has been used to recreate you. Uh, so this, this idea that a word, a promise spoken, is insufficient to create something new, a new legal reality, it, it, it's just false. Okay, words have power, and, and human words have been given the power by God to create something, some realities, and covenants are one of them um, to some extent. So a formal relationship is created, and this formal relationship has obligations from both parties so in any covenant there are things that must be done there are duties there are things that are bound uh, things that are tied down options that are cut off 
there are um, yeah, duties that need to, need to be happened. And, and then there are also corresponding freedoms that are things that are loosed within this, um, this covenant relationship. Did you, did you have a question? Yes, and responsibilities. And responsibilities, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Um, so uh, obligations are created, uh, but there are benefits created as well, named benefits usually, uh, as well as a whole host of unnamed benefits. So um, we think about this again in, in the, the context of a marriage covenant. Uh, the, the named benefit is now that everything that one has belongs to the other. Uh, and that now there is a uh, uh, there is a stable relationship on which on which to build. There is the promise of protection and provision. There's the promise of um, uh, of uh, giving and receiving. Uh, these things uh, that th- there are benefits that come with it. Benefits for the couple. Benefits for future family. Benefits for wider society. Uh, and a lot of those are laid down in a formal way. Um, through marriage vows, for example, um, they're there. Um, so the, 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 the covenant creates a, a legal reality. There are obligations, there are benefits, and then there are consequences for breaking it. Um, a covenant relationship is not just a drop it when you want to kind of reality. That's not what it is. Um, because the reality is the parts of the universe that are involved with this have shifted so as to make, uh, to make this a real thing and, and to, to create a rift there, to tear those things apart again is actually really huge. It's a monumental thing. Now covenants can be broken, but the circumstances are strict and they're always tragic. Mm-hmm. They're always tragic um, because they're, they don't just re- those circumstances don't just um, represent the, the end of a business agreement or just a casual acquaintance. Uh, those things represent the destruction of a bond that has been written into the world. Um, it's more, the end of a covenant is more akin to a death, really, uh, than just a, a simple falling out. Um, and that's actually testified to in ancient covenant-making rituals. I mean, you can be, uh, you're probably familiar with, with Abraham and, his, uh, and the, the covenant God made with him. Um, what what ritual did God tell Abraham to do there? If you can remember. Uh, yep, what did he do to the animals? Cut them in half. Uh, so what they would do is they cut the animals in half, lay them out, create, a, create an aisle, and then the two parties would walk down the centre of that aisle. And what they're saying is, if either of us should break this covenant, let us be like these dead animals. This is the thing that is coming. Um, because that's how tight this bond is. The payment for the end of a covenant is something close to a death, really. Um, so that's what they're saying. They're saying, if we break this covenant, let, let us be like these animals, that would be justice. The covenants are incredibly serious, formal, legal realities. Um, on the other side, though, covenants are incredibly personal realities. Um, they're not just a bare legal reality. It's not just a cold, hard legal fact. It's not just, okay, right, we've made this agreement, stick to the terms, must do it. Covenants generally, particularly God's covenants with people, start in great benevolence, great kindness. They, they always start with some form of relationship. Um, 
And what they do then is they aim to create the framework for generosity. They're a legal framework for something to grow on. Um, great generosity, uh, benevolence between the parties, l- love between the parties. Um, they're supposed to be the background for great favour and friendship. And really, they're aimed at creating a shared history of covenant faithfulness. Uh, it's, it's a moment in time that then is aimed at creating a story throughout the years of each party being faithful to the other, sticking with each other, uh, providing the benefits that they've promised to each other. Um, it, it's, it's the cold, hard reality that's not really cold and hard and creates great stories of faithfulness coming out of it. Um, throughout the generations, covenants generally are multi-generational things. Um, they're not just me and you until we both die. It's me and you and the people that follow on after us. Um, so uh, covenants generally are, are aimed at creating multi-generational reality. So that the, the kids and the kids of and the kids of the kids and the kids of the kids, they're bound by that same relationship. Uh, so it doesn't matter that they are not the ones who made it in the first place. What matters is that they are part of it um, now. Um, and, and again, that's aimed at that shared history of faithfulness. Um, and, and particularly in the case of God's covenant with his people, that shared uh, the glory of God revealed through that shared history of faithfulness throughout the generations. So... Um, Covenants, though they are incredibly strict legal realities, they can be imagined a little bit like a, like a trellis upon which you're going to grow a really fruitful vine. Um, a well-crafted trellis is like a, a, a good covenant. Uh, it, it, is, it is able to support heavy fruitfulness uh, and, a, and, a, and a glorious thing that grows on it. Um, that's the sort of the aim as a framework um, for that. So covenants are a legal reality. Covenants are a personal reality. Um, Covenants are also a hierarchical reality. And we've touched on that a little bit uh, already with the sovereignly administered language that we were talking about earlier. Um, Covenants almost invariably have a party in authority and a party under authority. Um, They have heads and subjects, both between the parties, often, but also within the parties. So there's usually a covenant head, uh, someone who is responsible for the keeping of the covenant more than all the other people in the covenant, um, someone who is, uh, will ultimately answer for whether they have kept the uh, covenant and caused their people to keep the covenant. Uh, and usually there is a, a sovereign and a vassal. Uh, there's a, there's a, a head and a, a subject, a ruler and a subject. Um, in, in the parties um, making it. So they are inherently a hierarchical reality. Um, any questions so far? Anything you want to pick up on or, or, or talk about? Making sense? Mm-hmm. Good. Um, Something else that covenants almost always have are some form of covenant document or covenant memorial that reminds everyone Mm. what they're supposed to be doing, what the terms were. Um, So uh, 
often documents in the ancient world uh, or memorials um, that remind everyone of the terms under which they live. So I mean, you can see, as you read through the, the Old Testament, you see this all over the place. Mm-hmm. People setting up altars of, of memorial. Yes. You know, these were the things that God did. This is the relationship we have with him now. This is here to remind us and our future generations. Or this is why we have the Passover, so that you and your kids will know what God has done for you and will remember it and continue to live under the covenant. Um, you, you see that over and, and over again between God and his people, but between others as well. Let us set up this as a memorial between you and I. Let us set up this as a witness between you and me that we've made this covenantal agreement and we're bound together. Um, so covenants are documented so that everyone can remember them. Uh, and that is definitely true of the biblical covenants. Uh, and the great covenant document that we have is the whole of the scripture. That's what we have um, all of the scripture is the covenant document of the Christian church. Um, documenting all of the covenant faithfulness of the Lord to his people and all of his uh, requirements of his people and all of the promises and blessings that he's going to give to his people. Um, the topic of covenant memorials and covenant renewal ceremonies, that's a topic for another day. Um, it's a great and very interesting topic. We won't talk about it now. Um, but the, the key takeaway here really is that covenants are the framework within which the whole Christian life takes place, um, including our ethics, which is apropos to, our, to, this, to this course. Um, all right, so that's just a few key features of covenants. Really, this whole lecture, we're going to be thinking quite heavily just about the dynamics of covenant and how that works together, because uh, it's really helpful as we go on in, in thinking about what God requires of us, which is essentially what, what this course is about. There, let's think a little bit about the main covenants of the Bible then. Uh, we've co- talked about covenants generally. There are two main covenants in the Bible. Um, and both of them actually made with Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve before the fall, and Adam and Eve after the fall. Um, traditionally, there are different names for these. Uh, for example, covenant of works or covenant of life for the one before the fall with Adam and Eve. Um, and then a covenant of grace, which covers all of God's work after the fall. Um, God's relationship with his people um, following, following the fall. Uh, so, so that's the, the two main covenants there, pre-fall and post-fall, and they cover all of God's work with his people and with his creation as well. Um, however, what we often call covenants, there are different covenant administrations within those covenants, particularly the second one. Um, so uh, covenant administrations, we'd, we'd class the covenant from Noah as a covenant administration, uh, covenant with Abraham as a covenant administration, same with the uh, covenant with Moses, David, uh, and with Jesus, what we call this the new covenant. Um, the, 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 the point of denoting these as one, sort of altogether as one basic covenant of grace, is to highlight that there is a fundamental unity between them all. Um, that though through, from one administration to the next, there are developments, there are things that God adds, 
uh, things that God reveals more clearly, there is a fundamental unity of his work with his people from immediately post-fall with Adam and Eve all the way through to Jesus and the very end of things. So that's the purpose of, 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 of designating those as one covenant. Um, any questions there? Well, I suppose I'm anticipating the next bit, and that would be why you think pre-fall it wasn't still the same covenant, the covenant of grace. Um, <clears throat> I uh, so I the name covenant of works covenant of it's a very controversial topic in certain yeah. circles <laughs> in, a, in a very strange little way. Um, the word covenant of grace and covenant of works can make it sound like Adam didn't have any grace um, pre, pre-fall. Uh, and I'm, I'm not of that view. Um, the covenant of works pre-fall was just as gracious in many ways. Mm-hmm. Um, what, what designates them, I think, as, as different covenants is that... Um, Yeah, there's a, there's a fundamental break. There's a shift there. Mm. Adam really did break that covenant mm. completely and fully. Right. So he's the terms of it are done, gone. So God has to make a new. God has to make a new covenant there, and I think he I think he shows that by his uh, his killing of an animal to clothe them. I think there's sort of some liturgical clues there mm. um, that that, uh, that that point to the fact that something. New with new terms has taken place here. Um, however, I am not. I, I, I'm not. I, I wouldn't want to say that the, that the, the shift is between no grace, now grace, which I, I which is how I've encountered it. And yes, I just don't accept that. Yeah, but yeah. Your, so, your your view is very palatable. So. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think I think that the the, the covenant with Adam. The initial covenant is so broken in such a way by the fall yes. that, that yeah. a new a new yeah. terms yeah. have to be made, um, yeah. or its destruction. Yeah, yeah. Um, it resulted in death as you sin. That's if you break a covenant, there's going to be death. Yeah, yeah, quite exactly. There's there's all of these big judgments that come in and fall, and then it's 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 death. It's uh, you're cast out. It's that's it. Gone, done, and then new one comes in. New covenant of uh, covenant of grace um, which was also broken but God remained faithful to it yeah he didn't allow his people to suffer the full consequences because he knew what was coming yeah yeah because he knew what was coming yeah um all right um so uh two basic covenants there one that we don't have to think about now because we haven't we don't live under it and, <laughs> and the covenant of grace which we do live under. Um, and so um, what I want to do is, is, is think a little bit more about what the dynamics of life are within a covenant. The basic parts of a covenant agreement that give it shape um, and therefore shape the whole of our lives as believers. The, the basic contours of the landscape that we live in. Um, the, um, the, the, the framework, the um, the big building blocks that should form our understanding of the reality that we're part of. 
uh, because covenants are fundamental to that reality. This is how God relates to his people and to his creation, really, as well. So, what are the parts of a covenant? There are multiple ways to split this up. Um, The way that we're going to tackle it, covenants loosely have four parts to them. Uh, And uh, these are generally laid out in covenant documents. Um, So here are the four parts we're going to work with. And uh, as I say, there are are people who differ on exactly what these parts are and and where the boundaries are. And some reduce it to three or extend it to five. But we're going to deal with four. Um, We're going to say there's great benevolence within a covenant. That's how it starts. Great benevolence from one party to another. Um, There is a response required. There are blessings for faithfulness to the covenant. And then there are curses for disobedience or curses for faithlessness to the covenant. Um, We're going to spend a bit of time in Deuteronomy this evening uh, because the book of Deuteronomy is a little bit of a case study of these dynamics. Um, It's not the only place in the Bible that these things show up, absolutely not, but it is a nice sort of conveniently packaged um, way of seeing them uh, for our purposes this evening. So we're going to start looking at each of these in turn. Um, Great benevolence. This is how covenants start. You could turn to, well, you don't have to turn, you could just listen. But uh, Deuteronomy 5, verses 1 to 6 is where we're going to uh, see these things. See great benevolence. Deuteronomy, for, for what it's worth, is in many ways shaped like one of these covenant documents. Not exactly, not precisely, but it's, it's clear, I think, that this whole book follows these, these, these patterns. It is meant to be uh, a covenant document of particular potency um, for the people as they're about to head into the land that God is giving them. So Deuteronomy is right on the edge of the land. They're going in to take their covenant possession. And so God is reminding them through Moses of the terms of this covenant. So uh, that's why we're in Deuteronomy. So Deuteronomy uh, 5, let me read verses 1 to 6. And Moses summoned all Israel and said to them, Hear, O Israel, the statutes and the rules that I speak in your hearing today, and you shall learn them and be careful to do them. The Lord our God made covenant with us in Horeb. Not with our fathers did the Lord make this covenant, but with us, who are all of us here alive today. The Lord spoke with you face to face at the mountain, out of the midst of the fire. While I stood between the Lord and you at that time to declare to you the word of the Lord, for you were afraid because of the fire, and you did not go up into the mountain. He said... I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. All right, this uh, covenant document, this covenant uh, reminder starts with the declaration of a great act of kindness that God has done to his people. And that's what's initiated this relationship here. Um, He heard their cry. He rescued them from Egypt. He acted in faithfulness to his promises that he'd made to their um, ancestors and he saved them through the Red Sea. He provided for them. He led them out of Egypt with all of the plunder of Egypt. Um, If you remember the story, the uh, the Israelites leave Egypt after having asked all of their neighbours for jewellery and they leave having plundered the Egyptians. Uh, And God has done this for them. This is his great act of benevolence, of kindness to them. And it's important to note that this comes before everything else. 
This comes before everything else. Um, And in the case of biblical covenants, the declaration of the kindness God has shown comes before every other part because the beneficiary has ultimately done nothing to deserve it. Um, And we see that clearly here in Deuteronomy and in the whole Exodus story. Israel has been saved solely on the basis of God's promise to Abraham. That's why he saved them, because he promised to Abraham that he would do it. And that promise itself was given based on nothing more than God's gracious choice and confirmed to Abraham via the faith that Abraham had, which was itself a faith given to him by God. So this starts immediately with great benevolence, of kindness, undeserved kindness. Uh, and there, there are other examples of that throughout the scripture and other covenant administrations. You think of Abraham himself, as we've just mentioned. Um, he didn't deserve to be promised these things. Um, think of, of, uh, of the, the covenant uh, with, with David. Um, he recognises, who, who am I to have received these great prov- uh, promises? Um, I'm just a... I was just a shepherd and that you've lifted me up in Israel and now you've also promised that you're going to lift me up in the whole world so that my family is the one who rules the world forever. Um, David didn't deserve that and he recognises that. Those, those, covenants, um, those covenant agreements and declarations, they all start with this great kindness. Um, covenantal relationship with God begins with God's benevolence. So that's the first part. And really, probably one of the simplest parts Uh, We're all fairly familiar with that Um, as Christians. We know that we don't have anything by our own merit. We've not deserved anything. We've been given everything, including this covenant um, that we have. We'll think a little bit about how uh, we relate to some of these dynamics a little bit later uh, later on. The second part is that there is a response required. And that's where we read, um, or again, uh, verse 1 of chapter 5 here. And Moses summoned all Israel and said to them, Hear, O Israel, the statutes and the rules that I speak in your hearing today, and you shall learn them and be careful to do them. Uh, And then from uh, verse 7 following, we're very familiar with those. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, uh, etc., through the Ten Commandments there. Um, It's important to note that, that this covenant is not unconditional. It is conditional. There is a condition that the the Israelites must keep for this covenant to not be broken. Um, Covenants are never unconditional. Um, That that doesn't lessen them. That doesn't make them less generous. It doesn't make them less personal. Uh, It's just part of the nature of what they are as legal realities. Um, I mean, really, no meaningful relationship is unconditional. Mm. Um, You know, marriage is very conditional. It really is, but that doesn't diminish it in the, in the least. It doesn't mean it's not the, 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 uh, the place where great kindness and personal relationship can grow. Um, so the condition here is obey the precepts, commands, uh, etc. Listen to my words and do them. And then it's followed by the Ten Commandments um, immediately in this passage. But then uh, there's, a, there's an expansion of those commands throughout the rest of Deuteronomy and uh, really throughout the rest of the Bible. Um, they are to live in the ways of the Lord. They've been rescued by the Lord. The response is they will live in the ways of the Lord. Uh, we need to touch on a little common misconception here, I think. Um, are they saved by perfect obedience here? What do you think? Is that the condition? Perfect obedience. 
if they slip up, is that is that the end of it? They can't have perfect anything because they're human beings. Mm-hmm. That's where the grace comes in. Yeah. Well, you hear a lot of people say, "Well, the old covenant here, oh, the yeah. terms of it was obedience. Mm-hmm. These people needed to do the thing; otherwise, that's it. It's done. It's all a covenant." Works. It's all covenant of works, essentially. Yeah. yeah. Um, but that's not true. No covenant administration in the Bible is kept by anything less than faith. All covenants in the Bible uh, require faith. And I would say even the covenant of work with, works with Adam before the fall required faith, in that Adam had to trust God's works yeah. and do them. Um, he had the ability to do them, um, but uh, it was still a, uh, a faith and uh, grace based thing. Um, so no covenant administration in the Bible is kept by anything less than faith. So it's not true, for example, that God's uh, covenant with Moses and Israel was a covenant kept by works. They did not earn their salvation, uh, unlike us, you know, who get it by grace and faith. Uh, there were commands, definitely, that's not what I'm saying, but they were commands to be kept by faith. Um, this is not covenant keeping by perfect obedience. This is covenant keeping by faith. Um, and it doesn't take long to see how that must be the case because what were some of the commands? Some of the commands were bring animals, sacrifice them for the forgiveness of sins. Mm -hmm. To keep the law, you have to acknowledge that you are a sinner and need to be forgiven. Mm -hmm. Um, True obedience for Israel meant being obedient to the command to acknowledge their lack of obedience. That, so, so, so true obedience for Israel, for them to be truly obedient to the word given to them here, meant they had to obey the command to come and acknowledge their lack of obedience. Okay, yes. They had to come and acknowledge the way they failed, otherwise they would not be being uh, obedient to the, to the things they'd been given. Um, yeah, so in the new administration, gospel administration, whatever we want to call this point yep. in the story, the same, isn't it? It's the same. You have to acknowledge your sin. Yeah. Yeah. Obedience. And the solution. Yeah. Yeah. Obedience to God's word requires obedience to his word to humble yourself and ask for forgiveness in all parts uh, of, of his covenant of grace. Um, um, without trusting in God's given sacrifice to take away their sins, they could not keep the covenant. And so, really, although there are commands here, we mustn't be tricked into thinking this is anything less than trust God, trust his words. That is the only way uh, to keep this covenant. And really, that's the only way that living faith goes as well. If you trust God, you trust his words. Um, All trust in God is trusting that he does what he says, trusting that what he says is good, uh, what he says is good is good. And what he says is bad, is bad. Um, And that is what they're called to. um, To trust God, to trust his commands and to do them. Uh, And I think for our our study here in in Christian ethics, we're going to have to understand that vital connection between faith and obedience. Um, Faith will lead to obedience for these Israelites. If it doesn't, it's not real faith. It's dead. I mean, that's what, that's what James says. Uh, faith without works is dead. Uh, and dead faith was never true faith in the first place. And that, that link is so tight um, that 
often unrepentant disobedience is the proxy for a lack of faith. It's, it's how lack of faith shows itself. Um, faith is not something that simply lives in our heads. It's something that, that, that goes into our inner being and then comes out in all the parts. Um, and lack of faith is the same. And so when it shows up in history, it shows up in people, it shows up as unrepentant disobedience to the commands of God. Um, and so, so really, the judgment of God, the true uh, final ultimate judgment uh, of God, sort of the damnation for covenant breaking, it doesn't come just for breaking the rules in and of themselves. It comes on that lack of faith. It comes on uh, the lack of faith which leads to unrepentant command breaking. Does that make sense? Um, we, the way we see lack of faith or faithlessness show up in our lives or in the lives of people around us is through unrepentant disobedience. That's the proxy, really. So when you see um, in the Bible uh, God judging a people for idolatry, um, it's because that idolatry is showing that they lack the faith to trust him in his words and therefore have broken the covenant. The covenant is still broken uh, by faith or faithlessness, kept or broken by faith or faithlessness, um, not by obedience to command simpliciter uh, in, in, in of itself with no other sort of consideration. Does that make sense? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, and this is why it's nearly... It's covenant breaking is so often phrased in terms of idolatry or other gods or immorality, sexual immorality, but that always seems to get inextricably tied in with idolatry. So, yes, those things do go together. So those things are, just thinking out loud here, so those things indicate lack of faith. They do, yeah. Yeah. Um, because you do not trust that what God says is good is good. You do not trust what God says is bad is bad. You do not trust that if you follow his words, it will lead to covenant blessing. Instead, you try Genesis and go elsewhere. Um, Just Genesis 3, it, yeah. yeah. Did God really say? Yeah. Uh, well, I don't think he did. I don't trust his word. I'm going to go this way. Yeah. Um, but um, we sometimes have this idea that uh, when someone has lost their faith or lacks faith in God, they're just going to come out and say, oh, by the way now, I don't believe in God anymore. I don't trust him. But that's not often the way that it really works out in reality. The way we see it is through, through their actions. And God gives us through his commands and his description of what is good and what is bad, the kind of things that we will see and be led into if we start to, to, to break faith. Um, mm. Those things are tightly together. Um, all right. Uh, to throw something else into the mix here as well. Um, for the one who is faithful and yet sins... In this covenant setting, uh, consequences 
according to the law, may still fall on that person mm-hmm. for what they've done. Mm-hmm. However, that, because they are repentant, or because they actually have that, they, are, they, they have faith, and they trust God, and they've not broken the covenant ultimately, the dynamic we see is that then God uses those consequences as discipline rather than judgment. Like King David. Uh, like King David, mm-hmm. exactly. King David sinned. It didn't, in his case, mean that he lacked faith. But the consequences still fell. Someone had to die, even if it wasn't him, which was the strict consequence of the law. His child died, and the consequences were there, and the sword didn't leave his family. Um, but that is not a sign of ultimate judgment on David, because David was faithful. It was instead used by God to discipline him and his line. I very much like your fabric earlier, fabric of reality concept because if the covenants shape the nature of reality then breaking them you're just the natural a priori process is going to lead to dire results which could be loosely called death Uh, a a variety of deaths yeah a variety a gradation of deaths essentially yeah 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 Yeah. Um, but for the one who is uh, uh, the one who is faithful to the covenant and yet sins, even in a way that leads them to consequences, consequences that consequence is transformed into discipline for them. Um, so uh, we have this we have this sort of framework where within the covenant there are going to be people who are faithful to it and therefore not breaking it, and people who are faithless in it and therefore will be eventually at least breaking it unrepentantly um, but and you sometimes have uh, corporate things that fall on all of them either blessings or curses mm. and and they because of the individuals within and their slightly different relation to the co- the covenant ultimately it um, those blessings or cursings are ultimately in the, in the big picture seem to be different things for each of them so a faithful person who suffers the corporate discipline, corporate judgment of the Lord on, uh, on the whole nation of Israel, if they still were a faithful person, that is a discipline for them. It's not ultimate judgment. It's not a sign of their destruction and removal mm. from the covenant. And yet for the unrepentant person in that mix, mm. it is a taste of future final total judgment. Uh, so the same thing falls on them, but it, it is a slightly different thing in relation to, to, to whether they are at heart faithful or faithless to the covenant structure around them. And it's the same with blessings as well. A corporate blessing falls on a, the nation that is largely faithful. There are people in there who are themselves faithless. They receive the benefit of the blessing, but what that adds up to in time is greater judgment yes. because they're piling up a pile of ingratitude mm-hmm. because they're not responding faithfully to it. Whereas for the faithful person, it is a true blessing and a foretaste of greater blessing. So you have that little sort of matrix of, of, of things, of how this, uh, how this works. Um, we've jumped ahead a little bit, I think, uh, on some stuff, but we'll, 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 we'll carry on now. Um, yeah, so, so faith is never just an internal thing, and neither is lack of faith. It starts in the heart, it always works its way out into concrete obedience or disobedience in history. Faith alone saves. 
But saving faith is never alone. Um, and so in Deuteronomy here, how is Israel's faith supposed to show up? It's supposed to show up by obedience to the commands of the Lord, uh, including those ones that point to the forgiveness of sins. Um, and lack of faith will show up as, as we've said, disobedience, idolatry, breaking of the commands. Um, but it's important to note that in a covenant, a response is required and God lays out the terms of what that response is, should look like. What the person who trusts him will do. Um, okay, so that's, that's the response required. We also have the next part, blessings for faithfulness. So we're going to move to Deuteronomy 28 here. And I, I will, I'll read, yeah, I'll read the first 14 verses um, of this. So Deuteronomy 28. And if you faithfully obey the voice of the Lord your God, being careful to do all his commandments that I command you today, the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations of the earth. And all these blessings shall come upon you and overtake you if you obey the voice of the Lord your God. Blessed shall you be in the city, and blessed shall you be in the field. Blessed shall be the fruit of your womb, and the fruit of your ground, and the fruit of your cattle, the increase of your herds, and the young of your flock. Blessed shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. Blessed shall you be when you come in, and blessed shall you be when you go out. The Lord will cause your enemies who rise against you to be defeated uh, before you. They shall come out against you one way, and flee before you seven ways. The Lord will command the blessing on you in your barns and in all that you undertake. And he will bless you in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. The Lord will establish you as a people holy to himself, as he has sworn to you, if you keep the commandments of the Lord your God and walk in his ways. And all the people of the earth shall see that you are called by the name of the Lord and they shall be afraid of you. And the Lord will make you abound in prosperity in the fruit of your womb and in the fruit of your livestock and in the fruit of your ground within the land that the Lord swore to your fathers to give you. The Lord will open to you his good treasury, the heavens, to give the rain to your land in its season, to bless all the work of your hands. And you shall lend to many nations, but you shall not borrow. And the Lord will make you the head, not the tail, and you shall only go up and not down. If you obey the commandments of the Lord your God, which I command you today, being careful to do them. And if you do not turn aside from any of the words that I command you today, to the right hand or to the left, to go after other gods, to serve them. Okay, in covenants, faithfulness is met by blessing. And this is the Deuteronomic example here, the case study. If they trust God, if they listen to his word, this is what, this is what he'll do, to them, do for them. Uh, again, this is faithful response, not mechanistic obedience. It's not, it's not, a, it's not a simple do the thing, get the thing. This is uh, trust me, and I will overflowingly bless you. Um, let's talk about the prosperity gospel a little bit. Do you know what the prosperity gospel is? Yeah, a, a prosperity gospel is essentially that, what we've just talked about. Uh, you do this, you do this you'll get it back. Um, to some people, this here seems like the prosperity gospel. A little spoiler, it's not. It's not like the prosperity gospel. Uh, the true prosperity gospel, and I'm going to speak pretty strongly here, is, I think, a damnable lie in the most literal sense in that it leads people to hell. the prosperity gospel. Yes, because they trust in their own souls. Yeah, not necessarily everyone who has believed any little bit of it, but in mm -hmm. terms of the general, in the general sweep of it, 
That is where it leads. Um, but we also need to make sure we know what it is that's wrong with the prosperity gospel so that we don't reject things that the Bible says while we're trying to reject something else. Um, the chief problem with the prosperity gospel is that it has a very mechanistic view of the world. It views the world as a machine. It views God as a machine. It views God as the great sort of give me stuff button at the top of everything. Just press the button. It's almost paying payment for. Yes. You, you earn the thing by doing the thing and you're sure to get the thing. Um, that is the absolute opposite of the personal, formal relationship that we're talking about when we're talking about covenant blessings here. It doesn't involve God's presence with, his, presence with his people. It doesn't involve trusting God and taking him at his word. Instead, what it involves is doing the thing, getting the thing, pressing the button, out it comes. And that is an incredibly diminished view of God. So much so that it is not the real God. Mm. Um, covenant blessing that we're looking at here is blessing because a personal God delights to give his gifts to his children, has come to be with them, and because all good things flow from the presence of God. They always have. That's where the good things come from. Him with you. That was the case in the garden, and it's the case with the temple, and it's the case throughout the Bible story. God comes to be with his people, and anything good flows from him being with them. Um, uh, it's because they are his children, they walk with him, they know him, he is with them. Um, whereas the prosperity gospel is a machine. You do the thing, you sow the seed, you pledge the money, pull the lever, that's it. That's it, you've got it. Um, he's the ultimate vending machine God, the God of the prosperity gospel. Um, On the other hand, though, if you do what God wants you to do, he does reward you. Well, this is what we're going to talk about here with covenant blessings. Okay. Um, another problem with the prosperity gospel, it, it ignores the divine prerogative. God is king, and so he says, I'm God, you're not. I get to decide what I give you. Mm. You don't you get to decide. Me this? Yes. Yeah. Um, the prosperity gospel attempts to twist God's arm to get the private jet you always wanted. Uh, that's, not, uh, that's not how it works. God is God. And he can choose to give you something or he can choose to not give you something. And you have no right to complain either way. Uh, he has divine prerogative. Um, other problems with the prosperity gospel, from what I've seen, it doesn't really understand what real blessing looks like. Um, it's a lot of bling and not many babies. Um, which not many, is not many babies. Mm. A lot of bling, not many babies. Private jets, private yachts, not many fruitful, productive families. Um, which I think is the opposite of what we see God's real covenant blessings are. Um, the, cover, the prosperity gospel has no idea what to do with suffering because the universe is a machine, because God can't do what he wants, he has to do what you've manipulated him into. Um, if you don't get the output, it's because you're not doing the input. Mm. Um, you're not pros pressing the buttons correctly. So it has no place for suffering leading to greater fruit in the grand picture. It has no room for martyrdom leading to the, being the seed that leads to the growth of the church, for example. Um, it doesn't have that whole view of blessing through suffering because it has no place for suffering. If you, don't get, if you get suffering, you're not operating the machine correctly. Um, it has no place for that fatherly discipline we were talking about because... You're uh, well, you're in charge. You're the one manipulating. And if God doesn't immediately give you the nice thing that you want, 
then it means that he doesn't love you or you've not done the right thing enough for him to love you and give it to you. Um, and it has no place... I mean, you read the Bible, you see that God plays rough with his people. He plays rough with them for their good. Uh, the prosperity gospel has absolutely no place for that. And so, uh, as a system, it, it, it does violence to the Bible. Um, and also, usually, the whole system is set up as a pyramid scheme. Yeah. Uh, to benefit one greedy leader who wants to eat the sheep rather than feed the sheep, yeah. essentially. Uh, and none of these are small things wrong with the prosperity gospel. As I say, these are things that lead, it, lead people to hell. Um, but there is one thing that is not an issue with the prosperity gospel, and it's not the idea that the Lord blesses his people. Some people see the prosperity gospel and they run to the other end and say, right, the Lord does not bless his people and does not bless them for faithfulness. Uh, he does not bless them with anything that is tied to their faithfulness. You know, um, you shouldn't expect to see any blessing from the Lord at all in history. Um, maybe, you know, it's all shoved right to the end of time um, because we can safely say that God will bless his people then and not accidentally be prosperity gospel people. So you, you do see that kind of thing happening. The problem with the prosperity gospel is not the idea that God blesses his people. It's all of that other stuff. Um, so let's look at some of these blessings that God promises. Um, here's what God promises to Israel. Uh, that they will be high above the nations. So his people will not be the bottom of the pile ultimately, but, but the top. They'll be the head, not the tail. Um, they will have blessings in the city and in the field. They will have fruitfulness, fruitful crops, fruitful cows, fruitful wombs. Um, they will have full baskets of good fruit. They will have full kneading bowls of good bread. They will have the blessing and protection of God over various good endeavours when they go out and they come in. Um, they will have the defeat of their enemies. They will be established in the land. They'll be stable. Uh, they'll have the, uh, the protection of the Lord to get on with living the good life and seeing the fruit of it. Um, they'll have plenty of rain. And the work of their hands will be blessed. Um, these are the promises that God gives to Israel here, the blessings that he promises. Now, these are not just plucked out of the air. Um, these are not just promises that God thinks that these people would like. Oh, that's quite nice. Uh, these are the Christmas gifts I'll give to them. They're really into babies and really into good food and fruit. So that's what we'll promise. Um, <clears throat> they're not just culturally conditioned. Um, this is not really to do with the culture of the time. You sometimes hear these blessings explained in that way. Really what these are is paradigmatic blessings. These are the paradigm of blessing that God sets. And this is not the first time they've come up. This is basically a repetition of the blessings God is going to give in the garden. These are creational realities, creational goods, things that God has set up from the beginning and said, these are good. And now he's saying, follow me and I'll give them to you. Um, This is the description, God's description of, of, of the good life. Um, and they set the pattern for the types of blessings that God's people should expect. They tie into to the creation order, if we've, as we've just said, and the creation pattern, as well as they tie into the restoration and perfection of that creation in the redemptive story as well. Um, so for, for those in, in, in the covenant with God, faithful obedience is met by blessing. Now, important to note, this is blessing far greater than anything that they deserve. 
They've not earned this. Um, it is all gift. It is all lavished upon them, um, like a father giving good gifts to his children that they've not earned, because they're walking with him, because they're in covenant with him, they're in fellowship with him, and he is with them. So that's uh, blessings for obedience, blessings for faithfulness. But covenants also have curses for disobedience. Uh, and this we can also see in, in Deuteronomy 28, immediately afterwards. And we're not going to read all of these curses. You'll notice that they are far longer than the blessings. Um, and they are really quite uh, bleak. Um, and... And you'll see, if you read this, and I encourage you to read this by yourself, uh, it's just too long for us to go into now, uh, you'll see that most of these curses are the flip side of the blessings. So instead of fruitfulness and lots of babies, we'll give you lots of miscarriages. That's how God does this here. Um, Instead of uh, lots of food, you'll have no food and ultimately end up eating each other. Cannibalism is in here as one of the curses that will happen to an Israel that is faithless. Um, Instead of defeating the wild animals in the land and being protected by your enemies, the enemies will come and destroy you and the wild animals will eat you. Um, It's illness, barrenness. uh, It's I will bring all of the uh, all of the illnesses that I gave to the Egyptians. In the Exodus, they're going to come to you. So it's that kind of thing. That, that these are incredibly serious um, curses for covenant breaking uh, and, uh, and, and covenant discipline as well. I remember that we talked about both discipline and, 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 and judgment there. Judgment for covenant breaking, discipline for um, teaching righteousness to the people. Um, <clears throat> and each of these curses, uh, we should note, are foretastes of the great day of judgment for those who are not faithful both within the covenant and outside the covenant so um, we need to make sure that we read these things and are not apologetic about the dreadful things God will bring against covenant breaking Um, covenant breaking is an incredibly serious thing throughout the Bible um And remember what we've said, covenant breaking comes with faithlessness. It's not just, I've sinned this time, um, but I'm now repenting. It's abandoning the covenant by abandoning the covenant Lord and placing your loyalty elsewhere. But that shows itself through disobedience to the commands that he set up. All right, let's think a little bit about the new covenant then. Those are the four parts of, uh, of, of covenants. Now, the key thing here is to, th- is to realize that the new covenant, that we, the administration we live under is greater and better, but not fundamentally different in its dynamics. Um, so when we say the new covenant, it's not a new new covenant. It's not something entirely new. Uh, it is not radically disconnected from the old and these covenant dynamics. Instead, it's a maturation. It's a blossoming, a blooming, a coming of age of the thing that was there uh, to begin with. Now, that coming of age did happen via a death and resurrection to new life. But really, in reality, all maturations come through death and resurrection. That's how the Lord teaches his people wisdom through variety. Of, and it goes back to the problem with the prosperity gospel. 
The Lord teaches wisdom through deaths and resurrections many ones. Um, that's why he disciplines his people to teach them things. Um, and so that's the pattern of maturation. And that's the pattern of maturation here between Old Covenant and New Covenant. It's a death and resurrection, um, a, a maturation, a, a, a blooming and blossoming of the thing that's there. So there's no fundamental disconnect there, no, no radical discontinuity. Um, so everything that we've been looking at about how covenants work and the dynamics that they have, it, it holds true for this covenant administration that we live under. Um, because covenants are a fundamental feature of how God deals with his creation and his people. They are the relational structure that is written into the fabric of the universe. Um, they weren't just a simply a sort of quirk of the time, something that the people around were using, so God decided to do that to make it clear to them. Uh, they used covenants because God has first written the universe this way. Mm-hmm. Um, so instead of uh, these dynamics changing in this administration of God's covenant with us, all of these things hold true, but they're magnified to a greater and better extent. So we see a better, greater benevolence that's been shown to us. We have Jesus dying for us, dying our death for us, being that great sacrifice, the, 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 the one that uh, all of Israel were to look to, but now we see it clearly and fully. Um, he has been raised to life for us, to raise us to life. He's ascended to the right hand of the Father as our conquering and saving King. Uh, these are all things that are pointed to through the whole old administration of the, uh, of the covenant of grace. Um, and now we have seen them fully and received them fully. We have that better benevolence. And actually for us here today, I mean, we have an even greater lack of deserving because we were Gentiles and had nothing to do with all this stuff in the past, except for you know, promises for the future. Um, We are not by blood part of this covenant, and yet God has chosen to join us in. Um, So we have uh, have that greater benevolence. Um, We have God showing his kindness of forgiveness, of rescue from sin, of recreating us, promising us us an even greater recreation and restoration. Uh, We've been adopted into the household of God. These are all the the great kindnesses that have been shown to us and, and that we now see clearly. Uh, in a way that, that they didn't see back when Moses stood in front of Israel here in Deuteronomy. They saw glimpses of them and they had the reality of them in a way, but we see them clearly and we know them. Um, with that greater benevolence, we have a greater call to faithfulness. Uh, so here's uh, Hebrews 2, verses 1 to 3. Um, So, uh, the writer of the uh, letter to the Hebrews uh, says this, Therefore we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels, that is the old covenant to, uh, to, to Israel, since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? So there's that, there's that from the lesser to the greater there. There's a, if it was, if their call to faithfulness was that big, how much, how much more is our call to faithfulness um, in this greater, uh, greater covenant with this greater message of, of grace? Um, 
And at the same time, though, we have a greater assurance that our imperfect faith is covered by a perfect sacrifice. Because the sacrifice that we see and has has been done for us is better than the blood of of goats and bulls. So we have that greater assurance that our imperfections, our sins, are covered. And yet we also have a greater call to faithfulness. Let us not neglect this great salvation. Um, And those two things go together quite nicely in that just as in the old, uh, our greater faithfulness requires a greater trust and a greater sacrifice. To, and, and a greater, acknowledge, a greater uh, acknowledgement of our sins, really. Um, the excuse is, is less. Um, the new covenant uh, also gives us a greater ability to be faithful, uh, in that the Holy Spirit has been poured out more fully to more people. In, not, in, not, in, uh, not in the measure that it was in the old covenant, but in great measure. So we've got passages like Acts 2, uh, 17 here. Peter quoting Joel, uh, prophesying the great day when God will pour out his spirit on all the people so that they may be able to live as faithful people of God, be able to do um, what God uh, requires of them. Uh, we think of promises... Um, the promise of writing the law on, on hearts, you know. These are the promises that come uh, with the new covenant, the, the greater fulfilment of the same things. Um, a greater ability to be faithful. Um, we have a greater certainty of the fulfilment of the promises. Uh, if we stop thinking about our own individual part of the covenant for a moment and instead think about the progress of the whole covenant people and the whole progress of salvation history. If you lived in the days of, um, let's say, Manasseh, you could rightfully look around, you could be uh, forgiven for looking around and going, right, this is going nowhere. This whole covenant is falling apart. Uh, This salvation that God has promised, where's it going? It's It's not going to happen because this is all falling apart around us. Now we have a, they had assurance that it would go the way God has said. So there's no excuse for them to say um, it's falling apart. But you can, you can understand how they might. For us, we have a far greater assurance in that we have seen the perfect son of David do the perfect redeeming work and, the perfect, and will, we know will do the perfect resurrecting and recreating work as well and that will all come to completion. He has finished his work he has taken his seat at the right hand of the Father. We know with even greater assurance that this whole thing is going where God says it will go. Um, we have that, that greater blessing. Um, and, and we have um, these blessings that we were just looking at in Deuteronomy. We have um, greater blessings. We have fuller blessings. Uh, now, don't mishear me. We don't have those blessings replaced by some sort of invisible, intangible, um, so-called spiritual blessing. Um, you can see that in, in how the Apostle Paul talks to, uh, I can't remember exactly which, which letter, in one of his epistles, he tells children to obey their parents uh, that it may go well with you in the land. He takes exactly from Ten Commandments, including the promise, yeah, yeah. and then says, you do because the blessing, the blessing to God's people. You know, it's the same dynamic I played there. Um, when I say we have greater blessings, we have greater fulfilment of those blessings over a larger area of the world. 
Israel has become the whole world. The people of God has become every nation coming to the king. Um, it is every family having the opportunity to be blessed in Abraham, not just Abraham's family being blessed in Abraham. Um, it's important to notice that uh, to note that the promises we sometimes talk as if the promises of the Old Testament are fulfilled in the New Covenant, but sort of subversively. Um, the Old Covenant people were expecting the wrong thing then when they were expecting um, blessings on families and crops and things like that. They were expecting the wrong thing. And Jesus comes and tells them how they're all expecting the wrong thing. And really what they should be looking for is some sort of invisible, uh, immaterial version of that. Um, but that's not how it works. Uh, God gave them those expectations. Uh, and God said those expectations would be fulfilled when, he, when Messiah comes. Um, let me just read something like Psalm 72. God gave them the expectation. He said, this is what will happen when the Messiah comes, when uh, the king of David's line reigns. Um, God is not interested in just suddenly subverting those. Mm. Uh, he keeps his word. Mm. Um, now, they are greater in that we see ways in which those promises fruit and flower in ways we never expected in uh, in that they're not now that they never were but we see clearly that they're not just limited to Israel or to uh, one particular family or or even uh, we see the way now that God can still bless the childless woman with the same promises um, through the church through all sorts of promises for the future you know we see the greater fulfillment of them but that doesn't remove the the, the core expectation that was there from the beginning because God gave that core expectation and said it would be fulfilled. Does that make sense? Oh, yes. Yeah. Um, we don't see the promises of the new... We don't see the new covenant come and replace the covenant promises of the Old Testament. We come to see God make them overflow the banks in ways we didn't expect as well as being what they always were to begin with. Mm. Um, and we also see uh, actually greater curses for faithlessness. And again, we see that in, in, in Hebrews. How, um, this is Hebrews ten twenty nine. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace? This is serious. Uh, rejecting this covenant breaking this covenant uh, is more serious um, and the greatest of these curses are to do with abandoning Christ uh, to do with apostasy someone who claims to be a member of God's people who has his name on him has been baptised in his name and then despises that inheritance despises that covenant uh, tramples it underfoot leaves it behind abandons it that's what the greatest of these curses is for um, remember what we've said all throughout this um, living faith and living faithfully are so closely linked that someone abandoning Christ is not just going to up and say that's it I abandon Christ the most likely way that we're going to see that is them breaking the commands that God has given uh, unrepentantly embracing a life of disobedience so um, as an example um, these days unrepentant embrace of a homosexual lifestyle for example would be a sign of faithlessness um, and therefore approximate sort of declaration that person was a covenant breaker 
which is why uh, that kind of thing would be uh, to, to sort of take a bit of a leap to church uh, discipline. That is why the church would be commanded by God to uh, hand them over to Satan, as Paul says, to, to cast them out of the church um, because that kind of unrepentant behaviour is a proxy for the lack of faith in God and therefore covenant breaking. Um, so that's why there's that link between church discipline, casting out people who, uh, who are living a sinful, unrepentantly living a sinful way. It could be all sorts of different ones um, mm. because that is a sign of their covenant breaking, their, their, their faithlessness. I mean, we don't know for sure, which is why there's always the hope that they'll come back um, well, the, the, yeah, exactly. There's always the hope that that discipline, yeah. that, that 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 judgment, is actually discipline, um, rather than a sign of their ultimate uh, curse. But do you, does that link make sense there? Um, oh, yeah, do you see yeah. see how that's all linked together? Yeah. Um, all right. Uh, finally, then we've got five minutes. Uh, I've called this lecture the the, the beauty of covenant obedience. Um, and I think, uh, so I want to end here with, with saying why I think this is actually a really beautiful dynamic, why I think this is a, a really lovely thing that God has written into, the, into the, the fabric of the world and into our relationship to him. Um, this is neither legalism nor is it antinomianism. It threads that wonderfully. This is not earn your salvation or earn your blessings. This is great overflowing kindness poured out on those who trust the Lord. And yet at the same time, it is not anything goes, no obligations, make it up as you go along. This is a formal relationship with real obligations of trust and obedience and terms that are laid out. Um, this is not a free-for-all, uh, nor is it a list of ways to earn your wage. It's neither of those things. Uh, now, I think most people in the world today hunger for clarity on what their obligations are to the Lord and what they're not. And they also hunger for this great sense of overflowing blessing and kindness. And the, the reality is God has provided a way that we relate to him in exactly those ways, a way that he can overabundantly bless us and yet also call us to respond in particular ways uh, on his terms that he has set with clarity, um, with uh, uh, in a way that doesn't just leave people groping around in the dark not knowing what on earth is going on. So I think covenants have this beautiful mixture of hard realities, sharp lines that allow great relational beauty to flourish on. Um, so yeah, they are beautifully relational. God's extraordinary benevolence starts this covenant. Um, it's upheld always by his kindness and his, his blessing on his people. Um, and at the centre of this covenant is the presence of God with his people it, it, this is not a hard thing, it's not obedience just, you know, obedience for the sake of obedience it's obedience for the sake of relationship and shared history of faithfulness with, with the Lord um, I, think the, I, think, I think God's covenant is beautiful because it is fixed and yet it is totally at home in history that changes so covenant standards and obligations, they come from the character of God. They're fixed and immovable. The paradigm's there, they're firm. God doesn't suddenly love something that he hated a few minutes ago, and he doesn't suddenly hate something that he once loved. And yet, covenants are inherently historical things. They're, they're about God and his 
faithfulness to his people and that history, that story of how he has come through for them in this moment in time, or how he has saved them from this, or how he has blessed them with this uh, in a way that they never deserved. Um, they are, they're about God with his fixed and true character interacting with people in places and times. Um, and I, th- I think that's a really beautiful dynamic. Um, I think that covenantal obedience provides a framework for thick and uh, rich, fruitful Christian culture amongst the people of God in a way that sort of cold legality and just keeping to the rules never, ever can. Um, and a way that easy-feely sort of relationship never can either because no one's on the same page about anything. Um, Covenants, I think, are beautiful in that they are inherently hierarchical, and God's covenant uh, in particular. Um, The world is not a flat levelling of things. It is an ordered layering of things. And so I think they chime beautifully with the way God has made the world to be. Um, I think the more you think about covenantal dynamics and ponder these things, the more you come to see that... uh, they match the way the world is really, really perfectly. Um, I, I think covenants are beautiful because, and God's covenant with us is beautiful because it emphasizes both the individual and the corporate in a way that is impossible to do otherwise. Um, in, a, in God's covenant, the individual has a real share as an individual. Um, real obligations, real blessings as an individual, real importance in there but that individual is more than just sort of an atomized unit that is unrelated to the people around um, there are real connections and those those obligations that god has written into the covenant actually bind they bind the people to god but they bind the people to each other as well uh, and those those obligations and those those connections those bonds are allowed to flourish in a way that really binds the, the, the thing into a, into a corporate whole and yet never swallows up the individual. Because the individual always has their share as an individual. Uh, always has their part in the covenant. Um, are either in it or not in it by themselves. But never um, by themselves as a sort of atomized individual with no connection to their past or their future or the people around them. Um, and they are beautiful because they are uh, God's covenant with his people is is beautiful because it is based entirely on trusting faith as a response to God and his kindness and they're all based on his generosity all all based on him showing kindness to people who do not deserve it and letting that be the framework that leads to righteous living 